You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so delighted that you are listening today. This week we're going to chat to people involved with two events, one which you can do from the comfort of your living room and the other for which you have to get off your sofa and leave the house. But the thing that, for me at least, gives them something of a shared DNA is their creativity at keeping us engaged in the arts at a time when we've got screen exhaustion and going out to the arts is off the cards. I know I've said this numerous times over the past few months, but the tangential thinking that is going on in the arts right now to find ways to entice and entertain us is nothing short of brilliant. When your raison d'etre is to get people off their couches and through your doors and where without those butts on seats, you don't make any money, the situation we all now find ourselves in is dire. We are all spending more time digitally engaged than ever before, apparently 476 minutes per day, which is just shy of eight hours a day, according to data collected on May the 1st this year. So getting us to spend even more time online, being actively engaged with the arts, is in many ways extra tough. Which is why I take my hat off to Talking Horse Productions' fabulous original monologue contest that kicked off this week and which runs through the end of September. But more on that in my first chat today with the Talking Horse Productions' artistic director, Adam Bretsky. Meanwhile... Over at Mizzou, their artist-in-residence program has taken up the mantle of getting us out of the house, safely, with a new projected poetry exhibit which starts next week and illuminates the work of five poets and the art of one graphic designer on various buildings all around campus. And on today's show, we have the project coordinators, one of the poets, and the graphic designer, all dropping into my virtual studio for a chat. So, let's head out. First stop today is Talking Horse Productions and Adam Bretsky. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. It is a delight to be chatting with you again. I was going to say that it's been months since I last talked to you, but then I looked it up and in fact, it is only seven weeks. But judging by what we're going to talk about today, I'm guessing there has not been much downtime as you prepared for a month-long original monologue contest, which started earlier this week. So the inaugural Talking Horse Productions original monologue contest Absolutely brilliant idea. I love it to bits. Tell us what it's all about. Thanks so much. This was kind of an idea that I conceived after we had to make the painful announcement that the rest of our season had to be canceled just due to the ongoing pandemic. One of the 
silver linings to delaying the season was it allowed for Rashara and I to start thinking outside the box and start to think about how we could create content uh, where people are. And so the idea that I came up with was that we could solicit brand new monologues from writers that are likely out of work and give them to our actors here in town and all around the nation who are also probably looking for some creative projects to do, record them and then post them one a day for the month and allow people to donate through those based on a $1 is one vote. And so that's what we've got here with our original monologue contest. At the beginning, we were hoping for 10. (laughs) And uh, we, we put out the call just through our social media feed And lo and behold, we ended up with just about 40 different submissions from quite literally all around the world. We've got one monologue from Canada, two from the UK, one from New Zealand even. And how these people were finding about our contest, it it just blows my mind, quite honestly. But we've got some terrific content All of it is original, so there's no chance that you would have seen any of this before. Performed by a lot of the actors here in town that you know that, of course, you haven't had a chance to see on stage in a while. So what was the brief that you sent out into the world for playwrights to respond to? So really all we did was we put out a collection that says, "Here's we're looking to do a fundraiser, and we're looking for original content that we can produce and feature. Um, When I started getting submissions as far as the UK, I I kind of panicked a little bit. And I wrote them back and I said, oh, I just, I want to be clear about this. We are a, a tiny theater in Columbia, Missouri. <laughs> We're a nonprofit organization. When I said, you know, you could win some cash, I, the cash is going to be whatever you're able to help us raise. It's not going to be something like a $10,000 grand prize and national renown. It, it just kind of is what it is. And I expected some people to say, well, okay, never mind. But I think this is a testament to just the generosity of creative people. Every single playwright that I reached back out to to explain the circumstances, they said, we're on board. This is a fantastic idea. We're happy to support it. It's a tough time for theaters out there. What can we do to help? So you have 40 plays that are coming. Was there a time limit for the monologues? Yeah, so the original time limit we had was five to 10 minutes. Now, it's always tough in figuring out a timeline for things because I might read something faster than another actor. So generally, I think as I've been going through the videos, they're clocking in anywhere between about two minutes to about 12 minutes. Okay, and what was the casting process? So that's the fun part. The casting process was essentially random. All I did was ask for actors that would be interested in participating in a monologue, and then they had zero idea what type of monologue I would assign them. Oh, right. They didn't get any choice. They weren't reading the play, the monologues in advance. You just decided for them. Did you decide randomly or did you decide, oh, this person would be great for this play? (laughs) Well, that's going to be my little secret. Um, (laughs) I will say that it's a combination of both. There were some instances where I looked at the content of the monologue and I said, well, who who do I know that would be a great fit for this? And I would pair them up with that one. And in some instances, especially if the content was gender neutral or race neutral, then I picked people that I thought 
would just enjoy the challenge. There's some pieces that have some accent work with it. There are some pieces that are dramatic and some pieces that are funny. And really, it just kind of came down to who I thought could rise to the challenge. So many of our, I mean, our local actors are also playwrights. Was there a rule against performing a play that you wrote? Or did you not have anybody in both categories? Uh, so we do. We've got a couple people in both categories. And yes, just to make it fair across the board, we had a rule that nobody could perform their own piece that they wrote. To that same extent, the actors that are performing the pieces, they were not allowed to know whose piece they were performing. Ah. How did you think that was going to make a difference? Although they couldn't speak to their friends and say, how do you want this played? Exactly. So what we really wanted to do was have it be a challenge for both the actors and the playwrights, the playwrights in that they couldn't give any advice or say, you know, I'm thinking about changing this or try to think about it like this. And for the actors to just take literally what's on the page and try to decipher sort of the subtext and the hidden meanings and all of it. Have you allowed the playwrights to see the performances of the actors in advance of it being posted online? No. So this that's part of the fun is that they get to see it for the first time. And a lot of them are seeing the monologue performed for the very first time at all. Right, because they're all brand new works and haven't been right. performed before. So obviously, as the title of the project indicates, these are monologues. So there's only one person appearing. Um, but talk me through the production process of making the videos that we see. Who was in charge of that? So really, we left the actors in charge of filming themselves. Now, some people have different comfort levels, especially when it comes to the, the current state of the pandemic. Some actors had no problem coming in and uh, recording it at the theater. Some actors said, you know, I, I really would feel more comfortable just filming it myself. And so we allowed for that flexibility. Some actors you'll see that are just on the talking horse stage uh, in front of the black curtain. And then some actors have gone above and beyond and figured out a costume and a whole set within their house. Wow. Okay. And so it just started this week. So there's only been a, a handful that have been going up already. And so every day you have at least every day through September, you have at least one performance going up. But some days you have two. Is there any particular reason? Are the days that have two plays are the plays linked in some way? No, they're not. So the order was randomized just based on how many submissions we got and then spacing them out. So you'll notice that the days that we have two are the first day of the month, the last day of the month, and then Sundays. And the reason that there's two on Sundays is because looking at our analytics on our Facebook page, we get most traffic on Sundays in the morning and then at 8 p.m. that night. So we put these videos up when most people are looking. Okay. And it is obviously it's a fundraiser for Talking Horse. So what is the funding mechanism? How do people respond? That I'll admit has been a little bit of a challenge. Uh, the Facebook tools that have been given to us, we can put our nonprofit organization as a link to donate right on the video. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but Facebook has kind of changed over their interface. So unfortunately, some people are seeing that link to donate and some people are not. Uh, so the way that we've worked around that is we've also included a link to donate to the theater through PayPal. So folks, if they really like a monologue and they want to cast their votes for that, they can donate through PayPal and just leave a note for which monologue it's for. As I mentioned before, the way it works is essentially $1 is one vote. At the end of the month, after all the videos have premiered, the last one right now is scheduled for September 30th at 8 p.m., we'll do about a 48-hour period where people can go back through 
find their favorite monologue and donate their big bucks to that one. And then after that 48 hours, we will declare a winner. And then the winner will actually get to keep all the money they raise. So let's say a uh, video raises $200 for the theater. We'll split that evenly between the actor and the writer. So each of them will get $100. And that's great for them because it's a little bit of prize money. It's especially great for the theater because all the other videos we get to keep the money for and develop more in the tour 2021 season and hopefully develop more projects like this. Do you have a sense of how much you're hoping to raise through this? You know, being that this is the first year, it's really hard to say. I'd, I'd love to shoot for the upper thousands to kind of help pull us through because we haven't had a ton in the way of operating income in the last month. Right. Okay. So either through PayPal, can you go to your website and also donate that way? You can donate to the website. It'll take you that same PayPal link. So if you just want to eliminate the step, you can go right through the link on the page. Okay, on the Facebook page. And all the videos are available on Facebook. Are they also available on YouTube if anyone's not on Facebook? So they're not currently right now. Um, just with the author's permission, we only have the permission to put it up on Facebook. But that's hopefully something we'll be able to do in the future. Perfect. Well, I love it. I think it's such a creative and fantastic idea. And I have been like almost had my alarm on my phone ready to go, okay, the next one's up and I can go and watch it. It's just so exciting to see people that I haven't seen for so long and all these new works and, and you don't know what it's going to be like each time you see it. It's completely different and new. So fantastic idea. Congratulations on really coming up with something brilliant, Adam. Thanks so much, Diana. We'll chat again soon and, and you can let us know next time how it all went. I sure will. Thank you. And from monologues, courtesy of Talking Horse Productions, our next stop is to chat with Marie Hunter and Katie Harris, the two coordinators of a new project that will light up walls across the University of Missouri's campus. Good morning, Marie Hunter and Katie Harris. Good morning. Good morning. Well, first of all, thank you so much for taking time to chat about a new projected exhibit which opens across the University of Missouri's campus next week called In Focus Poetry and which is part of an ongoing cross-discipline artist-in-residence program. So before we get into the specifics of the upcoming exhibit, I don't know how much people know about the artist-in-residence program. So let's start there. Marie, Tell us what inspired the Artist in Residence program. Well, we're just a little over a year old now in terms of when we first launched. And while people may not associate it directly with the Artist in Residence program, they may remember the fun chalk murals that were on campus last September that were the Trompe murals that's French for trick of the eye that were really popular. That was our launch of the program just to draw attention to the fact and raise awareness that the university has an artist in residence program. The planning for the program goes back from that about a year when then Chancellor Alexander Cartwright introduced the idea and provided some dollars to seed it. He was inspired by a similar program that he had witnessed success with when he was at SUNY in New York and brought the idea with him to MU. He, of course, has since 
left and gone on to another job, and the determination was made by President Choi to continue the program. And why did the Chancellor feel it was necessary? I mean, we live in a town which, okay, maybe not right now, but under normal circumstances, is awash with art. I mean, as an arts organiser, it always felt impossible to find a night when there wasn't something else competing with my event. So what gap does the Artist in Residence programme fill in Colombia? Well, I think, obviously, the main focus is campus. And I think that you could say the same thing about campus that you just said about Columbia as a community, in that there's really vibrant arts happenings on campus between the Department of Theater, the School of Music, the Museum of Art and Archaeology, the School of Visual Studies, and the Bingham Gallery. So there's already a ton of art that's being made and presented But the idea behind the Artist in Residence program was to, first of all, bring all of those, we call them principles, and and also the Department of English is, is involved. So to bring all of them together as we plan programming. But chiefly, this is not just art for art's sake, which I am a huge fan of, so that's not a criticism, but this program really aims to make the cross-discipline connections and bring art out from those discipline areas and find ways to connect with other areas that are not the arts so that there's obviously just frankly, more art happening for more people. And, you know, and going back to the the chalk murals that I mentioned, that was one of the reasons we chose to launch the program the way we did, that we wanted to do it in the everyday environment or experience where people could just walk by and, and see it and enjoy it. We didn't want to launch the program in a traditional art setting where you admittedly get people, you know, mostly the audience members are are already self-identifying as art interested or art supporting. And so, you know, once again, the idea of making connections with lots of disciplines that are outside of the arts and therefore providing more art and also emphasizing that creativity is not just a desired trait in the arts, that it is something that is important in, well, really every career and, you know, making that that connection back to the arts. Yep, Marie, I know you are passionate about the fundamental importance of the arts, accessibility for children because of its role in developing problem-solving skills and encouraging mental plasticity across the breadth of learning. So is that part of the factor in developing this program for university students too? I think definitely, you know, and, you know, we, we must, you and I have talked about this before, we must get away from just talking about the arts. You know, once again, it sounds like I'm being critical of art for art's sake, which I'm not, because we need people just to love and support the arts and just purely want and do and see and listen and consume art. But making those connections, helping people more broadly understand how the arts are intrinsically connected and 
provide positive benefits in so many ways other than just going to see something that's beautiful or, or hear something that's beautiful or, you know, interesting. And, you know, a perfect example is something that we have coming up in October, and that is we're, we're working with the Center for Health Ethics at MU to sponsor a speaker at their conference on the ethics of burn treatment. And so what do, what do the arts have to do with that, right? Well, we're, we're sponsoring an art therapist who is giving the keynote, actually. She's worked in burn units and had success with art therapy and the healing approaches, you know, not the physical, but the mental, total person therapy using art, you know, so it, that's a great example of you know, if you're looking at that conference and you go, well, what does this have to do with the arts? Well, you know what? Here's here's a great way that the arts can be part of the solution with that issue. So, Katie, we are on the cusp of the next project, which is called In Focus Poetry. Tell us a little bit about that and what that entails. Sure. Well, as Marie mentioned earlier, Last year, we publicly launched the program with the chalk murals across campus. And so this year, we were trying to determine how best to launch the program again. We also wanted to celebrate the addition of literary arts to the program. And we added the Department of English within the past year. So we wanted to celebrate that and also do so in a way that we could bring art to campus during a pandemic, of course. We couldn't travel people in at this time. We wanted to be cognizant of public health and safety, but we also wanted to be able to bring art to campus. So that was the genesis of the Poetry and Art and Projection Project that we're calling, as you said, In Focus Poetry. So we are projecting poetry onto the sides of different MU facilities starting September 8th and running through September 13th. And so those will rotate each night. The other important thing to point out about the project, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, is that all of the five poets and the graphic artists are all Mizzou graduates. So we're celebrating Mizzou Made by showcasing their work, the graduates of the Department of English and the School of Visual Studies. So it's a really neat way to bring art to campus and to do so in a way where we've, you know, we talked about art for art's sakes. You might not be sitting down to read a book of poetry all the time, but You can hopefully walk by or drive by and see some beautiful words and some beautiful art. So, Katie, how are the artists for the project chosen? There is one artist for the program. Her name is Cynthia Perez, and she is a graduate of the School of Visual Studies. So Cynthia took all of these poetry excerpts, as we call them, and designed them. She was found through the work of our principals as a graduate of the School of Visual Studies. And then the same thing with the poets. They were also found through our principal through the Department of English. So they helped us find MU graduates who would be willing to showcase their work. And then Marie can talk more about Cynthia's next phase of the project that we're calling 2.0, where she'll be able to work more with current students at the university and continue her residency portion of the program. So the five poets that you have chosen, I mean, I'm sure that the Department of English creates a lot of Mizzou-made poets every year. How did you choose these five poets? I think this year is 
different <laughs> for so many reasons. We had a very short window of opportunity to know that the program was going to continue, the Artists in Residence program. And from there, we literally had just a few weeks to plan what we might do this semester. And so the selection process, I think talking about that at this point is, you know, not typical. Although I think if we didn't have a pandemic, we might be saying the same thing to you. And that is we are in the, what we're calling the emerging portion of this program. I expect that at some point we will get to some projects where we uh, do issue calls for qualifications, but we're not to that point. And we knew in the planning process that we were not going to be at that point yet in terms of being able to manage that kind of process. And so what we purposefully have done in the second year of the program is we've worked really closely with our principal departments and programs to identify, you know, maybe it's a group or an individual that they've long wanted to partner with, but just not been able to for whatever reason, and get their input about maybe there's something that they've not been able to program. And so bringing in a visiting artist or specialist would help fill that void in what they're doing. So the selection process at this point is kind of narrowly focused in on working directly with the principal areas to identify needs and the potential contacts that we can make and then and bring people in. And in the case of the poets and the visual artists, we worked directly with those departmental principals to quickly, because we were on such a short turnaround, identify individuals that we could work with over the summer and get the project done. So you have the five poets that you have whose work will be represented and projected onto the walls. How did you choose the works that are going to be projected? Was there an overall theme that you wanted with the projected works? No, there wasn't an overall theme. And the other thing to point out is these are not new works. These are existing works from the poets. As it turned out, though, I don't really know how much we should say about it because I don't want to spoil the works without having people come out and see it. It's almost like a little teaser. But we have three different locations, Jesse Hall, the Agricultural Building, and the new Singfield Music Center. One of the things in choosing the locations to project onto also became a little bit more complicated than we thought as we drove and toured and walked around campus because we needed buildings that had a good vantage point that didn't have trees. And there are thankfully a lot of trees on campus. So buildings that were accessible and that we could get to and that had good, clear, clean walls. So that's how we narrowed it down to those three, Jesse, Agriculture, and Sinkfield. So as the project came together and as we got the poetry excerpts, then we determined which was going to go on to each building. So the ones um, that are going to be on the agriculture building have more of a, a nature type focus. The excerpts that are at Jesse and then closing at Singfield are sort of our opener and our closer and kind of have a theme that way. So that's really kind of how it all came about in terms of theme, though we didn't specifically ask for 
poems with a certain topic, we left that up to the particular poets who submitted their work. And the works that are on the website, are those the works that will be projected? Correct. Okay. So they're very different in, in length. I mean, you have Jennifer Maritza Macaulay's is quite short. Other ones are super long. So yes. it's the complete prompts. So we knew for readability, we needed to excerpt them. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up, though, Diana, because we do want people to go to the website and read the full poems. But in order to really have an effective design, we are projecting very short excerpts from each poem. So again, I hope that we can share with your listeners the website so that they'll go and read the long versions or the full versions. And we also have as part of the projection, the AIR website so that people can jot that down and go and and read about the poets. The poets are all identified as part of the designs and then the website is listed so people can go out to the website. And give us the, the website address. It's air.missouri.edu. So air.missouri.edu. Perfect. I'm going to jump in our hashtag is Mizzou Air, all caps, lowercase Mizzou, capital Air. And both that hashtag and the website, as Marie said, will be on each projected image. So you can... Um, go to the website later and read the full poems. Or if you're walking by and you want to snap a picture, then you can keep that on your phone and go back and visit it later. And I guess this is a pretty obvious question, but these are only on display at nighttime, right? It's an obvious question, but a very, very good question. They will be (laughs) um, up from 8 to 10 p.m. each night from September 8th through 13th. Um, Yes, it was obviously going to be better if it was dark. And so that's why they're starting at 8 p.m. And then the work of Cynthia Perez, who is the graphic designer, what brief did you give to her? Is it she has a kind of free reign to interpret the poet's work or is she framing them in a certain way? Well, they're all very unique designs. So the similarities are that they all have words in them (laughs) and quote marks. And she ended up using a similar color scheme for all of them. So they are related in that way. But we really left it to her to interpret the excerpts. And then there's a standard design that's paired with each projection that she also created that credits the the poet. So, but we... We gave her full license to to come up with a draft. And really in the fine tunings, there's really been very little fine tuning that's occurred. Just really some readability issues. And, you know, going back to the, you were asking about the, the long version versus the excerpt, we knew, you know, for this to be effective, they need to be pretty bold and big designs so that as you walk by or drive by, you can get that morsel. Um, if it were a long, a long version of the poem, people would have to stand for a while to read them. And that becomes a safety issue. We didn't want to do anything that would cause people to congregate and have to wait to you know, watch something in a loop or read a long version. So it is a pairing of readability and you know, making sure that these were planned so that we were thoughtful of safety issues. 
So in this in this particular project, the In Focus project, Cynthia Perez is the artist who will be the one who is in residence and she will work with students for this semester or what is her role as the artist in residence? Right. So this, um, when we initially worked through our plans for this, it was just the projection project that we were going to be doing with her. And very recently, there was some interest in expanding a, a current effort on campus called Tigers Helping Tigers. And the idea came about um, that maybe our program could help with that. And so the obvious thing for us, as Katie and I talked about this, was expanding or continuing on what Cynthia is doing and having her work with students. And so that's what we're working on right now. She's going to, in the first part of the semester, work with some students who are in the School of Visual Studies, working um, in graphic design classes. And the assignment is going to basically replicate what she's done with us these past several months where they'll be designing using some select messaging and they'll design images that then will be projected later in the semester. So it was a quick turnaround for us, which is why we thought, well, let's just extend what we're doing here with this projection project, but involve students in the design process. And so Cynthia is working on the assignment and she'll work directly with the students. We're still working on the details if, you know, if it will be a combination of in-person and virtual, and then it will culminate with projecting those designs, student-made designs. It sounds a little bit like the interpretation show we used to do at the Art League, where we had artists and writers working together to work on each other's work. Katie, before we close, um, just give us the dates again and tell us where people can see this. Sure. So the project began September 8th, and that first projection will be at Jesse Hall on the east side. So back in the days when we were still going to performances, if you remember the, the theater, it's on that east side. Then the project runs through September 13th, nightly from 8 to 10 p.m. So it's a round robin approach. So September 8th will be at Jesse. September 9th will be at the Agriculture Building on the west side. September 10th will be at the Singfield Music Center on the southwest side. And then we go back to Jesse Agriculture and we close again at Singfield on September 13th. We really don't know what's going to happen if we have weather like rain. So that is sort of one asterisk on this, that if if we have a bad weather night, we will have to likely adjust our schedule. Okay, well, we are out of time, but thank you so much, Marie Hunter and Katie Harris. Thank you for bringing us up to date on the, the University of Missouri's Artist in Residence program. And I know you have other exciting things coming up, assuming that we have a semester. So um, let's check back in again later on and see what else you have coming up. Thank you. Bye-bye. So the person charged with creating the graphic design for all the poems is Mizzou graduate Cynthia Perez. So I thought I'd invite her by the virtual studio to tell us more about her side of the project. And of course, I couldn't resist getting her take on an issue that all graphic designers have a very firm opinion on. Good morning, Cynthia, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. 
Thank you so much. Good morning. Now, you are the graphic designer for the upcoming In Focus Poetry Project and a member of Hashtag Mizzou Made. And you graduated from Mizzou with a BFA in graphic design back in 2017. And then rather than going home to Sedalia, you went off to live in New York, where these days you are a member of the Warner Music Artist Services team. So do you feel like you're living your best life? I really am. You know, if I could pick the ideal living situation, it would be this living in the Midwest and then having the New York job. I have like the perfect balance right now. I know it's temporary and it's under really weird situational <laughs> like circumstances, but uh, I mean, I have my dog, I have a car, I don't have to, you know, be like a weightlifter every time I'm going to Whole Foods to get my groceries. So honestly, I am living my best life. Thank you. <laughs> So big question first, Cynthia. I know for graphic designers, font is everything. Oh, yes. For which font do you have the most passion? Oh, my God. Anything that is tall and condensed and really loud and in your face is <laughs> is my jam. I really like the font family knockout. And that's actually what I used on this project. Um, if there's ever any kind of free range for a project, that's that's what I'm going to use. I just love it. And you can also animate it pretty well because it's there's no serifs on there so you don't have to worry about any kind of funkiness it's just going to be straight lines and you kind of see this trend happening in media recently too where especially hbo they've been adopting this kind of font you see a little bit with watchmen um even in the nba i've noticed it a little bit too and the fun thing about these fonts is that you can kind of pepper them in anywhere especially in places where you feel like you normally can't which is kind of like with this project you know we have poetry we have some really nice delicate moments in the poems but overall I really wanted these graphics to be big in your face gritty something that the kids could you know just like gravitate towards and so any chance that I get really to to use these fonts I do and I and I really wanted to use it in this project. I guess as a graphic designer, you walk around and everything you look at, you're just looking at the font choice. Yes. <laughs> or the Pantone color choice. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And what kills me is actually here in Sedalia, Missouri, my family have, they have a restaurant, Mexican restaurant. And uh, even sometimes whenever they just get some, you know, some signage from Bud Light or any just anywhere really I'll just kind of nitpick it I'm like okay this this looks okay this look all right mom you guys did good this one's good to go and I just can't help it. I can't turn it off now like I need some help have you have you ever reconsidered your opinion of somebody because of their font or pantone color choice like oh, I could not date that person oh, <laughs> absolutely and especially with doctors you know like if they have a good website and I can find all the information that I need, then I'm like, okay, we, we can go to him. And it'll just be with doctors, really, because I, I just had a, some surgery earlier this year. And I was just like, if they have all their marketing materials in a row, then I know they're legit. That's really <laughs> how I like made some of my medical decisions this year. <laughs> oh, I love it. So tell me how you got involved with the In Focus Poetry Project at Mizzou. So I've actually been in touch with my professors there at Mizzou. And I've been doing some lectures for the senior class every fall since I graduated. So I've done three or four. And one of the professors mentioned to me, hey, there's this opportunity coming down the pipeline and we thought you'd be good for it. Um, what is your availability? Could we pass your name along? And this was all over Instagram. And 
It's like, yeah, please do like anything. I'm in, you know, I'm in Missouri during a pandemic. I'd rather, you know, what else am I going to do? And I would really like to do some art for the university. And I mean, this is the kind of project that I just would have eaten up as a, as a student, you know, and I would have been super just curious about. So when she mentioned the opportunity, I absolutely jumped at it. And then I got on a call with Marie and the rest of the team and Katie, who you've met. And it just, we got the ball rolling kind of from there. Everybody was on, you know, the same page of we need to move fast. So we also need to do this project as, you know, first timers when nobody else is, I don't think anybody else has projected artwork like this before. And so we were all just really rolling with the punches and getting it done. It was, we really clicked as a team from the get-go. So there are five poets and you as a graphic designer. Can you describe a little about what your role is and what your vision is for the project? So I really wanted some designs that were kind of like, they wouldn't feel out of place at a music festival. That was sort of my vision for all of these. I wanted them to each be unique to each poet's words and metaphors and definitely feel like they've been thoughtfully made for each one but I still wanted it to feel like a series you know they're going to be all over campus and they should reflect the Mizzou colors and look like they sort of relate to each other I wanted to make something that was just a little bit of everything but still us definitely a series that that was my vision from the beginning and Marie was totally on board and then also wanted to bring a little motion animation to each one just to make it seem more than your typical projection. So it's, it's, I mean, the project is ostensibly a poetry project and the graphic design is kind of a support of the project, but obviously you want your work to stand out and also be experienced in a certain way. How do you want viewers to look at the graphic design component? It's a great question. I, I hope that they get excited by it. I hope they're pulled in kind of by how loud some of these designs are. And then they have like, ah, moment once they take in the words, you know, it's almost like advertising for these poets and these poems. And I just want to bring a little bit of shock and just take away any kind of assumptions you would of, you know, most poetry design, which is usually very clean and and you don't mess with the line breaks at all. I just wanted people to get excited and, and feel like their their personal aesthetics are a little bit seen, right? Or projected, if you will. Mm. What are some of the maybe technical considerations or limitations you had to contend with? Oh, we had a few different things. We were a few different hurdles that were really unique to this project. For one, um, top of mind was always legibility. So I had to make sure everything was high contrast and very big and bold, which also helped with, you know, my vision for the designs anyway. So it was a justifiable move to make these fonts so big and and in your face. And also the line weights, there's all, you'll see some animations there that you've got like these really nice abstract nods to wind and I really had to beef up those lines more than I normally would because whatever texture you're projecting onto is going to eat away at those lines so there really wasn't a lot of room for elegance which directly juxtaposed some of these poems so it was it was really it was interesting to work with you and you also had 
the colors would sometimes change depending on the color of the texture of the building. So with Jesse, it's a red brick building. So it would really pull warm with anything that you put on there. So even the whites look a little bit beige. But I found that they all added to the the uniqueness of each projection. And and there's even some that I really like the way the texture is coming through. It kind of reminds me like in Brooklyn, the old paint advertisements on the on the buildings. Um, just the way that the building was naturally distorting and you know, interrupting the projection. It was a really cool effect, but uh, top of mind, there was there there was a few considerations for sure. Did the poets have to approve the designs, or or will they see it for the first time when it's projected? Many have already seen them as they've been a work in progress, and they did have. It was kind of like if you see any red flags, if you have something that you're absolutely opposed to, please let us know. Otherwise, this is what we're going with. And uh, to my relief, everybody <laughs> was good with everything. They loved it. And I loved it. So it was just kind of a dream project in the sense of approvals because it was more of like, you're an artist. I'm an artist. This is what I would like to do. But if you're not OK with it. We will definitely hear you definitely change it. And they were fine with it. Are there any particular parts of the overall project that you particularly love? Little parts of your design that you're extra proud of that we should look out for? Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm I'm like pulling it up. Oh, my God. I was so excited about one, Rebel Language. There's a moment where it's rebel, the words rebel language draw in, and it, it has a very um, nostalgic sort of, 80s vintage kind of this the style that all I feel like a lot of the pop stars are roaming into right now with Dua Lipa and and The Weeknd where it's it's definitely modern with hints of that 80s glamour and I feel like I've got a really subtle nod to that aesthetic in this design and I just love the animation on Rebel Language it's really I think my favorite part about all these is I designed them in First and foremost, I'm thinking of these two-dimensionally, but then once I add the motions, it just kind of livens things up and really, it adds like certain little characteristics to it. Same with, um, I believe it's Electric Company. Yes, Electric Company is a design that I also really liked. And it was actually one of the first few that I showed to Marie and the team. And you've got these like blinking eyeballs and some pupil movement. And it's just, it's really cool, very trippy, psychedelic kind of MGMT-esque and what my hope is that some kids will walk by and they'll be like is that is that sunflower looking at me and they'll kind of do a double take <laughs> and then they'll be oh okay it's just a loop the, so those two were definitely my favorite just because they've got such a swagger to them I think and I think those two poems the rebel ed languages Jennifer Maritza McCauley mm -hmm. and then the electric company is the poem by Mark McKee so they'll be up next week. Will you be here for the the light turn on on the first night? Oh yeah, I'll be I'll be there every <laughs> single night. I love Columbia. I really don't need much of an excuse to go, and this is the perfect opportunity to go. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. I'm looking forward to seeing your designs and how they play with the poetry. It's been a delight to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good morning. Well, of course, we can't leave this project without chatting to at least one of the poets and, as luck would have it, one of them, Mark McKee, is the managing editor of the Missouri Review, 
and made time to chat. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Diana. Thank you so much for chatting to me about your contributions to Mizzou's In Focus Poetry Project. So you are the author of five poetry collections, with your most recent one being Meta Meta Make Believe, which came out last year, which feels like a century ago at this point. Um, Plus, your poetry works get published by numerous online and print journals. And by day, you are the managing editor of the Missouri Review, which I guess means you spend your working days steeped in other people's literary visions. So my first question is, how often are you professionally jealous? Oh, that's a what a wonderful and um, sharp first question to have. <laughs> um, professionally jealous. Uh, I mean, I think I would probably divide the jealousy into a kind of an artistic jealousy. I think professional jealousy is pettier um, <laughs> because because it's true that among my other numerous duties as managing editor, uh, one of one of the chiefest duties, of course, is to kind of read submissions to the magazine, often submissions that have gone through interns and perhaps our poetry editor first. And so the professional jealousy would go like, oh, this person is exactly where I envisioned me being, you know, many years ago when I started my uh, my graduate career. And they're a professor, they're they're published in this this lovely press that I've I've admired for, for so long. That happens fairly often and often enough not to be much more than a, a momentary Artistic jealousy is a bit more rare because, of course, the volume of submissions that we have means necessarily that, like, only a certain percentage will kind of, like, rise to the top of our concern. But when that happens, when the the poets that I'm reading kind of, like, separate themselves out, and it's, it's most exciting to us at the Missouri Review when we're reading people that we don't already know, we discover, it's one of our kind of, like, watchwords is being able to discover the best writing that's being done now. And so when, when I get artistic jealousy from a poetic standpoint, and sometimes it's not just jealousy because it's something that people are able to do with their art, but just something that I would never have even thought of. Um, I would say I couldn't gauge it scientifically in terms of like uh, frequency, but often enough that it's very rewarding to be reading all of the submissions that I do. Well, this is a strange time that we're living in, obviously, and and times of turmoil and war and suffering have through the ages given rise to some of the most powerful and probably long-lived artworks across all the genres. So I'm wondering, as a teacher and a poet, is there a part of you that thinks that this chaos of now is a gift of opportunity to artists? I would would hesitate to call the actual... um, the actual reality of what we're going through globally right now is a gift. But what I will say is that poetry and the literary arts are uniquely suited to addressing what's human about a moment like now. Mm. There's a reason I think that in chaos and that in tragedy, people turn to poetry and they, and they turn to literature. And it is because I think literature doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to kind of have a political or selfish agenda. It doesn't need to kind of, I mean, great literature doesn't need to survive in the moment. It's meant for the duration and an artistic assessment and a soulful assessment, an artful 
address of chaos, disaster, tragedy, and loss is something that's always going to help us as readers and, and humans kind of like resolve at, at least or articulate at least something that we might be feeling but have no but have no language for. I think this moment is um, I think the the way that I've the way that I've thought about this moment and I have started to write about it myself trying to avoid being particularly pointed about too much because I'm, I'm searching for what the interiors of a moment like this are, what, what the shape of it actually is. But I think that one of the clear things that's, that's happening is that we're being forced to confront just how tenuous and how, um, to use just a banal word, unfair everything has been for a long time for many people. Mm. And it's very difficult to look away from that, but it's also, there's a dread impulse to do exactly that, to divert our attention from just how, uh, how dispossessed so many people are, how the, what the gaps are in terms of socioeconomic status and kind of like security and comfort are. And one of the things that art can do, and, and this is maybe what we're talking about if we talk about this moment as being opportune, one of the things that art can do is articulate those things without needing to be tied to any sloganeering, but they can, they can get as close to the truth as, as we're ready to process. And that's why I think we turn to it. So thinking about the project at Mizzou, the In Focus Poetry Projection Exhibit, you have two poems in that project, one called Blooper Reel and one called Electric Company. Did you choose those to reflect the time we live in? Or what made you choose those two? I'm trying to think back to where the impulse was, but I think that I think that in originally being invited to submit some work, uh, I was asked to especially perhaps consider things that might be relevant in a contemporary way. And those are two of the those are two of the poems that I landed on. I can't remember how many I submitted. I think it was maybe more like five. But those two that they chose. Were, were definitely submitted with an with an eye toward like what what has some sort of relevance to the moment. What did you want to say through both of those? Well, there's always there's always kind of a, a surfeit uh, that I want to say in in all of my poems. I hope that part of what I'm doing is is managing or balancing wildly disparate impulses and associations in my poems. With a poem like Blooper Reel. I think that the the impulse there it started with the title, which is I mean the real of blooper reel is R E A L, and it was generative to me uh, to imagine a, a blooper reel, whereas you know you're you're supposed to see things that didn't go in a in a movie or in a television show, and and that's that's cause for for humor and for just I mean a kind of seeing behind the scenes is some something affirming and kind of comforting about watching people play. And I wanted that same energy at the same time that it was dealing with very real and real life kind of like situations and, and quandaries, like existential quandaries almost. And it's wild because I was, I was reading this the other night and <laughs> the ending of Blooper Reel is, it's a lot more optimistic than I've felt lately. <laughs> but it did make me, it did make me want to kind of return to that level of optimism. With uh, with the other poem, with Electric Company, it was written 
it was written really kind of in the middle of the Iraq conflict after the invasion of Iraq. It was later after it had been clear that it wasn't going away. And one of the things that that's from, from my book, Consolation Year, and a lot of those poems were written over the period of kind of like 2004 to about 2011. And there was a sense, and I think that part of this also came from reading an essay by George Saunders called The Brave and Dead Megaphone, where he's talking about the difference between what's real and what you imagine to be real and the amount of violence that you can do going into a place when there's a, when there's a greater disparity of what's actually happening and what you think is happening, that equals the evil that you will wind up doing. Right. And so he mentions that it was a failure on the part of journalists at the time to, to try to get us to imagine Iraq as being full of people rather than quote unquote enemies or, you know, kind of terrorists or whatever. And that, that, that was happening with language a lot in the early aughts for me it was just seeing a constant, constant veil of division being kind of like drawn over what would be difficult to understand, but what I felt it was our moral imperative to understand. And then something like electric company, I'm trying to come to terms with and speak to strangers and embrace them. That's also a kind of like, it's also an optimistic move, I think, but it's, but I think it's a necessary one. And it's something that I hope my art is always after. Well, the projected pieces only show an excerpt from all of the poems, mm -hmm. some of which are quite long, including yours. So there's only an excerpt up there from Blooper Reel and Electric Company. So I do hope that people will go to the Artist in Residence website and read the full works, as I can't imagine how they're going to sit in isolation from the words around them mm -hmm. and the intent of each poem. And I would also like to thank you for the word decathect. <laughs> which is in your electric company poem and which means to withdraw one's feelings of attachment from a person or idea or thing. It's always good to acquire a new word when you read something. <laughs> well, you're certainly welcome. I owe that I owe that to another poet, Dean Young, who is uh, who used it in combination with a poem of his that uh, that mentions Frankenstein as monster. As opposed to cathect, which also exists. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but I'm going to decathect from you now and because um, we're at the end of our time. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure talking to you. Let's chat again soon. Okay. And that is it for another week. We are so lucky to live in a community with so many artistic teams that are determined to keep our lives full of art, even when they don't get to see us. I know that we are missed. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, Adam Bretsky, Marie Hunter, Katie Harris, Cynthia Perez and Mark McKee. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song, Restless Heart, at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com.
Emily, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. And until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.